everyone. Welcome back to EA Global. Uh, my name's Amy, and I am so excited to welcome you back to EA Global San Francisco after three years. <laughs> um, it's actually been five years since we've been at the Palace of Fine Arts, um, and a lot has changed since then, um, except for this talk, which I'll be giving for, I think, my 11th time. <laughs> so get ready to hear some things you may have heard before. So I'd like to challenge you to do two things at this event. One, be open to changing your mind. If you notice that a speaker or a fellow attendee has an opinion that you think you disagree with, try to figure out how they came to that idea. So just be curious in the conversation. Two, think about your plans. So if you're considering a career move, starting a new project, there are a bunch of people here that can help you think about those plans. There's content that can influence your decision. Um, so yeah, just like try to think about the best use of time for you at this event. Some more advice for getting the most out of the conference. So prioritize one-on-ones. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Um, people often meet their best friends, co-founders, collaborators at this conference. For example, I met at least half of my teammates um, as volunteers or attendees at EA Global. Um, and like, this is going to be our largest event ever. I keep saying that, but it keeps being true. So um, make time for self-care. We have more than 1,500 people at this event, um, and that can be pretty overwhelming sometimes. I'm pretty extroverted, and I'd say if I go to one-on-one, 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 by the time I've done a handful in a row, it's kind of a blur. So this is not like a one-on-one -on -one having competition or something. I feel like I tell people like prioritize one-on-ones, and then EAs are like, oh, that means just do like as many as possible. <laughs> That's not what I mean. I mean that like the content's usually available online, the people are here, and you can get a lot out of meeting them. But sometimes the most important thing you can do is go take a nap or like go for a beautiful walk or something. Because these one-on-ones are valuable and they're most valuable when you're present and engaged with the person that you're talking to. These are like really cool human beings that you can you know, be curious about and engage with. Um, so we do have a nap room, quiet working space, beautiful areas to walk around. Also, if you ever feel like you're having a hard time for any reason, you're uncomfortable, you're feeling sad, uh, Julia Wise is here. She's our community health point of contact, um, and the volunteers can help you find her, or you can contact her via swap card. So I'm so excited and grateful to the EA Global team and volunteers for all the work that they've done to make this possible. This year, we're on track to facilitate more connections in one year than every other year combined. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah, and we also have 75 volunteers wearing these blue shirts that you'll recognize. Um, they're here to help you, so flag them down if you have a question or concern. So thank you all for coming, and welcome to EA Global San Francisco 2022. So a little change to the normal procedure. We are going to do the photo now. I think people have told you that. So I'm going to go down into the audience. Um, they didn't tell you? The voice of God was supposed to tell you guys. Anyways, we're doing the photo now, so get excited. Um, and Caitlin, our photographer, is going to come up and 
help you be in the photo. Um, scooching in is useful, so while I go down the stairs, if you can scooch towards each other, that would be handy, thank you. Um, welcome everyone. I'm really excited to be introducing our speakers for this opening fireside chat, uh, Will and Toby. Um, they sort of need no introduction, but I'll introduce them anyway. Uh, Will McCaskill is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, Senior Research Fellow at the Global Priorities Institute, and Advisor at the FTX Future Fund. He's the author of Doing Good Better, Moral Uncertainty, and his upcoming book called What We Owe the Future, which will hit the bookstores in August, on August 16th, so get yourself a copy. Um, Toby Ord is a Senior Research Fellow in Philosophy at Oxford University uh, and author of The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. His current research focuses on long-term trajectories uh, for humanity and the risks which threaten to destroy our entire potential. Will and Toby together founded Giving What We Can in 2009, uh, and both helped to establish the effective altruism movement. So please join me in welcoming Will and Toby. Um, so Will, I know a thing you've been thinking a lot about recently is the idea of ambition. Um, maybe you could kick us off by talking about that. Sure, so yeah, over the last um, year or so I've been talking a bunch about culture of ambition and in particular the idea of kind of massively scalable projects. And so why have I been focusing on that? Um, it's like two reasons. One is just that in general, impact is fat-tailed. So uh, the people who do the very best within some field, I think have like really disproportionate um, impact compared to doing like okay or something. And so that's really clear within earning to give. You can just actually look at like how much do people earn in different um, paths. Uh, and it's very clear that like earnings are like this very fat tail distribution, especially when you're looking at entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, you know, evidence suggests it's through in research as well. I think it seems pretty clearly through when it comes to say politics as well. The president has this enormous, very disproportionate amount of power. And so if you're thinking just like, how should I act in a self-interested way? Well, going for a kind of like median -y outcome is like a pretty irrational strategy, I think, because well, if I'm trying to get resources for myself, they have enormously diminishing returns. So if I'm a billionaire, having an extra million dollars like, probably just doesn't make much difference. Whereas if you're acting altruistically, even if you're a billionaire, another million dollars is like huge. It's not that much difference compared to if you have nothing and have an extra million dollars. And so I think for altruistically minded people, you should take more seriously kind of aiming for like, the far tails, the best possible success. Um, so that's kind of like, so I think just in general, we should be like, when thinking about um, altruism, thinking like, okay, yeah, even if we are very likely to fail and actually achieve like very little, perhaps that's still the right strategy um, because if you are getting a chance of a very, very good outcome. And that's unintuitive, so it's something we need to think about. The second aspect is that just now compared to the past, we, I think, really have the resources to take seriously um, that idea. So when Toby and I co-founded Giving What We Can, you know, we were thinking like, how do we spend our donations? And that's like a few thousand pounds or something. And the frame is like, okay, there are all these existing problems and in the world, there's all these existing organizations we could be donating to. We're making this tiny, tiny difference in the margin and like, which should we decide, which should we choose between? 
And the relevant frame is like cost effectiveness. What will have the most benefit for the money we have? Now we have like much greater financial resources for EA as a movement. And that means that instead, um, we've got to be thinking about, for example, setting up new projects. And when thinking about setting up new projects, uh, it's not just like the benefit cost frame is like kind of can be misleading um, because if you can set up something that doesn't have as great benefit cost ratio as some of the best things we could be funding now, but is better than last dollar funding and is massively scalable, um, it can be like a better thing to set up than something that is less scalable but has a better kind of benefit cost ratio because the total impact can be greater. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is thinking about a kind of shadow cost or opportunity cost of labor where, um, again, when we kind of start, start giving what we can, we're just really thinking about benefit cost of money. Whereas now we're in this situation where it seems we're like, you know, very cons we've got this bottleneck of like very highly aligned EA labor. And in some areas, like in global health and development, GiveDirectly can just absorb huge amounts of funding without relying on like a scarce resource of labor. And we don't have anything like that really for anything within long-termism. And so that means I think there's really outsized rewards to creating projects that have the potential to scale massively with respect to funding without relying on labor, because that could be like better than our current last dollar. And in fact, like I think many projects, the main cost is actually the labor that goes into it rather than the financial costs. And so that's why I've been kind of pushing on this idea of what I was previously calling mega projects. Now I'm trying to move to massively scalable projects um, and uh, more generally on this idea of you know, being uh, judiciously ambitious. Yeah. Great. It would be great to hear from both of you, like, what kind of ambitions do you think that there are? Um, and in what sense are we already ambitious and in what sense mm -hmm. could we be doing more? So uh, I, I actually agreed with every word of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, I think, yeah, one, yeah, I, I, I've been thinking myself about these questions about ambition and also modesty or humility and interesting uh, tensions or at least combinations of those things. Uh, and there are some aspects of a certain kind of modesty that in some ways was setting us back on some of the, these aspects, where, it, particularly in terms of valuing our own time and, and labor. Uh, so, that was one aspect. Another thing is that a lot of the, the early thinking, which is still, still very relevant, um, as Will said, is thinking on the margins. And, and that's not a phrase that, that everyone knows what it means, but uh, uh, it means that, that there's already uh, you know, billions of dollars allocated to helping people in global poverty. Uh, so then you, you're not, it's not that you're doing the whole thing. Um, you're thinking about, you know, if I add another thousand pounds to that, or a thousand dollars, what will change? And that style of thinking is, is extremely valuable, and you can get things very wrong if you're not doing that, but you are making a marginal contribution, but you think you're doing everything, um, because there's often these diminishing marginal returns, which, which means neglectedness is really important. Uh, but increasingly, you know, we're not working on the margins, and so we need to be aware of which areas are we just doing something that's really quite big and new, and maybe there are increasing returns for a while until we reach a certain scale. Uh, so definitely keeping these things uh, clear is really important. A another related aspect is that at the start, we were doing what I kind of think of as uh, uh, single player altruism mm -hmm. or something, where you take the world as it is, and then you say, well, with my life, you know, with, with my years of time and, 
and my career uh, and also with my, my money. How can I make this, this change to it? Uh, and now it's more this multiplayer thing. <laughs> if we've got a community of people, what's the portfolio of things that, that our community is doing? And then what's the best way to use that, that portfolio? And sometimes you can, you can make changes that, that don't make sense on the margin because they're, they're actually moving to somewhere different. And so we, we do need to increasingly think like that. In, in my case, when it comes to the, uh, the ambition thinking, uh, I've been thinking uh, even more grandly about this, uh, that there's something, the level of ambition with uh, long-termism in particular is uh, extraordinarily high. Like, it's, it's kind of wildly high by it's any- It's kind of harder to get higher. Yeah, it's, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure it's possible to get higher, really. Um, uh, but it, it's, it, you know, it's ultimately, when you get into it, thinking about you know, the Earth could remain habitable for a billion years more, and that if, uh, if we avoid uh, uh, dying now, uh, then uh, we could fill that time with, with wondrous things, uh, flourishing lives. And, and even that's not the limit. There are, there are uh, billions of planets in our own galaxy and billions of galaxies that, that could be reached. Uh, and uh, stars will be burning for trillions of years to come. And so there's these questions about all of that. Uh, and I think that sometimes we, it feels like we're like, uh, I like to think about like a dust moat floating in a beautiful palace. Uh, and this kind of bacteria or something on the dust moat. And uh, they mainly focus on their dust moat. But every now and then they look up and they see the beautiful palace and everything there. But they tend to never think about it or, or you know, oh, you know. But it wouldn't be that surprising if this whole beautiful palace, something to do with what they could achieve, you know, was out there. Um, but we, you know, we tend to look at very nice pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope or the James Webb and then just forget all about it. So there is this level of just really grand ambition of not just to change the world in some nebulous way, uh, but to actually substantively change the chance that we get to you know, fulfill humanity's potential, as in that humanity gets to fulfill its potential, uh, as opposed to uh, as some kind of premature extinction uh, event or, or similar. And this is just so far beyond the ambition of what other people are talking about. And there's something a bit alarming about that or a bit, a bit strange. Uh, and uh, that it's, uh, I think it's, uh, when we think about culturally, uh, how do we think about ambition? I think that usually it's associated, like it's, I don't know, the good guys are not normally that ambitious. Uh, it's normally the yeah. Bond villain, right? Or something who has these kinds of grand ambitions. Uh, if you think about when someone designs a kind of system like the Harry Potter houses or something, it's Slytherin that's the ambitious house or something. Like, people associate it with some kind of darkness or something. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a mistake by the, by the forces of goodness uh, to not be ambitious enough and to leave it for others. And I think that when it comes, as you were saying, to individual ambitions, it kind of makes sense. Like after a while, you've got enough to have a very happy life with your family and to achieve the things you want. And it kind of doesn't make that much sense to keep trying to go after more. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to, to doing good, actually that's the, they're the people who, who should be ambitious. Uh, but the, the culture doesn't quite have that and I think it, it could change. Uh, yeah. Um, you spoke a bit about modesty at the start of that. Um, so what kind of modesty types of modesty do you think are commendable um, and what types do you think might actually do more harm than good here? Yeah, well, well I think uh, that one thing that's very interesting with, uh, with this approach 
is that we, we combine this kind of aim to change the fundamental course of history, or at least to, con, you know, to help inspire people to come together to, to make that change, uh, and that this could be the most important thing in our time. But also, but maybe we're wrong. Uh, yeah. you know, I could be wrong about that. And you don't often, that doesn't often come together with, uh, with these ambitions. Uh, and I think that there's a certain kind of uh, epistemic or uh, humility, like a, the, the idea that you might be wrong, uh, including also that you might be wrong about, you know, we, we wrote this book on moral uncertainty. Uh, mm -hmm. You might be wrong about uh, the facts of the world, but also you might be wrong about, uh, about the, the values that guide you. And it's worth taking seriously when, when someone else has a disagreement about this. And so I think there's this very unusual confluence of this kind of vaulting ambition, uh, both on this kind of very grand abstract scale and also on the, the scale of projects that we're thinking of embarking upon, but combined with oh, we really want to find out if we're wrong about it, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or we want to help people, uh, but we say in, in developing countries, but we really want to find out if the way we're trying to help them actually doesn't work, because that would, then it would be a waste of our time. We should be doing something else. And there's a very, this is a very unusual combination. Yeah, and it relates to kind of one of the things that I am most worried about with the kind of like culture of ambition mm -hmm. message is just like the types of personality you attract where um, I think like it's an extremely good and like very important thing like EA community at the moment of people who are like very like epistemically humble um, in general um, and also kind of egoless where it's like okay cool Toby's just better at doing this thing than I am so you should do it even if it's like you know a high status thing or something and if instead we're attracting like ambition and then maybe that attracts these like very mm -hmm. male very egoful people <laughs> And like, I think that could be very bad. Like, mm -hmm. if I think about how things could go at like AGI crunch time or something, like, you could imagine it. You know, maybe you want AI labs to merge or something, and someone just say, "Yep, okay, someone else should be like the leader of this organization." That's like quite a hard thing mm -hmm. to do potentially. And like, the kind of characteristic like entrepreneur alpha male kind mm -hmm. of thing is like maybe not actually mm -hmm. like what we want. And so it's kind of that's kind of tough. I think. Another aspect is that that in Will's thinking about these, these fat tails, as you said, and, yeah. and that, that the, the kind of impact that people have, you know, they can be people who end up having 100 times more impact <clears throat> than the average. That's kind of often thought of, you know, in, in this context, in a scale where it's like, there's a chance I make a lot of money or have, yeah, you know, have yeah. this big impact, or maybe I don't do anything much or something. If there's also a chance that, not just that uh, you get to zero, but you get to something oh, negative, yeah, yeah. Uh, then that can change things. Uh, and especially if it's the case that, that what you do might uh, damage the entire movement of people who are generating these projects. Yep. Um, so if, if one had a, you know, a plan that also had, you know, that, you know the, the downside was a chance of destroying the whole movement or tarnishing it you know, irreparably, uh, then that would be a big problem if people are taking on such you know, ambitious projects of that size. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, because I guess there's a risk of ambition being uh, sort of encouraging unilateralist uh, mm -hmm. actions or something. Um, yeah. So how might the effective altruism community be setting their sights too low? Um, and where do you think we could afford to be more ambitious? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think many ways. I'll just maybe highlight one, which is maybe not how people would naturally think of ambition, but in the context of research. Mm. I think people often have this idea of like, I'm a researcher, like, or I'm an academic, so I'm just going to add this little, little bit to the kind of mm -hmm overall cathedral of knowledge. And it's kind of someone else's job to like aggregate it and put it all together. 
um, into like what should our all things considered like view of the world be? Mm -hmm. um, and so a question like, how likely is it that civilization would collapse, might collapse this century? And if so, like would we recover? And I think like for many people in the research mindset, certainly in academia, would just think, whoa, that's just way too big. Mm -hmm. Or like, okay, what is the probability of like existential risk from AI this century? And it's like, that's just this huge question. Like, I'm just gonna answer this little bit of it. But it means that like the number of people who are really targeting the most actionable questions um, for decision makers like Future Fund or Confluence it's like four or something. It's like really small. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll maybe highlight one thing that's like addressing this. So Leopold Aschenbrenner is building what he's calling a grand unified cost effectiveness model. Mm -hmm. But the idea is just like you have some project, it is this model that you put in, like, what's the project doing for basically anything? That's the <laughs> kind of ultimate aim. And then it will say, like, how good it is in terms of, you know, benefits and costs. Mm -hmm. And taking into account all sorts of parameters, like AI existential risk, civilizational collapse and recovery, like, values and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you can, like, put in the own parameters um, if you disagree with, like, the, the assumed parameters. And that's just this, like, extraordinarily ambitious research project. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, this is exactly the thing that, like, the key decision makers need. So. I think that, <laughs> that's yeah. a great answer. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that would be just so so relevant for decision makers, and um, I guess would pull in a lot of knowledge that's it sort of being being done in the community right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, David, you touched on this um, already a bit, but what are the, some of the downsides you're both most worried about from aiming really high? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I said before, really, yeah. that, that it's. Uh, uh, particularly risks, not just that you fall to the ground, <laughs> but that you bring other things crashing down. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's also th this issue that uh, uh, some of my colleagues at uh, FHI have uh, talked about the unilateralist's curse, uh, which comes up there, which is, the idea is it's a bit like the winner's curse, if people have heard of that at auctions, where the, the person who gets high enough to win the bids of the auction is probably the person who overestimated the value of the thing that they're, they're getting. And similarly, you can get that if, if there's a bunch of people who could do something, say some grand project, but they're not doing it, you might think they're not being ambitious enough and they're making some kind of failing, but it could be that they think there's also some serious costs to it or chances of it bringing other things down. Uh, and that's the reason. And that if you're the only person who steps forward to do it, like conditional upon no one else doing it, maybe that's because you all had you know, somewhat inaccurate estimates of these things and you were the person who had the most optimistic estimates. Uh, so I do think that that's a kind of concern but also, I mean, there are ways to overcome that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they include, for example, talking to the other people who could have done it but have chosen not to and finding out why. And the answer could be they're doing other things uh, or that they think it's too hard. And, they, you know, so there are ways to overcome it. That shouldn't just be an excuse for not reaching high. Uh, yeah. But it also, uh, I think, is a useful frame for, for thinking about these challenges. Yeah, I think on the, like... Obviously, I like, strongly agree with unilateralism, and it's, again, something that I think is important kind of culture of like, not you know, checking with other people. Like, <laughs> is my model of things like, totally off? I think I do worry that like, in the past, I think this is just actually much less true now. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's been a much stronger mm -hmm. kind of cultural response mm -hmm. to this message than I expected. But I think in the past, like, people were very like, scared like in EA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I don't want to be unilateralist, so I'm just not going to do anything. And it was almost like, People were like so, like so afraid of potentially like causing harm or doing something yeah. that they weren't willing to um, like take action, even if it really was the case. Like 
you know, the lesson yeah. of the unilateralist curse is like, take all the people thinking about this. Who's the person in the middle? The middle view is the one that's kind of like, I felt like sometimes people were like, oh, if anyone objects, I just shouldn't do it. Yeah. And um, I actually think that now we've kind of moved, um, like even just in the last six months in this like mm -hmm. more kind of calibrated direction, I think. Yeah, but my, my colleagues who, who kind of introduced this idea, uh, they did this complicated Bayesian analysis <laughs> of like, in this unilateralist curse situation, how should you act given your priors over how everyone else is kind of forming their beliefs about how, you know, how valuable this thing is or how risky it is. And then they also thought, what if you just vote on it? Yeah. And it turns out that just voting on it is almost as good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is the same as like taking the middle person's opinion if you lined them all up. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the answer to it is talk to the other people, not don't do the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then I'll mention a couple of other worries, like again, from like seeing how people have responded. Um, so I think one thing is just like people kind of somewhat like pretending to be ambitious or something, but like not really having a clear plan. Um, so sometimes with like the applications that came in for Future Fund, mm -hmm. you could kind of tell it was like the same application, but on the budget they'd added a zero <laughs> at the end. Um, and it's like, well, this is going to be like very wasteful. Um, uh, a second thing um, is like thinking, oh, I want to be ambitious, so you start off with some enormous thing. Mm. Whereas really, like, this is why I prefer the like, massively scalable term. Mm -hmm. is, like, you might start, be starting small. Maybe you're starting mm -hmm. your budget at like, $10,000 a year, but it's something that c can scale like, um, to a very great degree. And that's important, because early on, you want to be nimble, you want to be learning a lot. Mm -hmm. um, if you're immediately like, starting off with this like, billion-dollar thing, then like, probably you're going to end up like this horribly bloated, like bureaucratic thing. Um, and then the final thing is like disappointment as well, where you know the lesson, the fat-tailed impact lesson is like you aim for like you aim for the best thing, and you probably fail. And so similarly, it's like we want to have loads of massively scalable project ideas, and we're probably going to fund like ultimately like almost none of them. And that's like hard to be in the like mental mode of. Mm. And so there's definitely a worry about just like in the nature of things, people like like, oh, but mm -hmm. we're talking about like being really ambitious and I have these plans and it's like not working out. And secondly, in terms of just like the environment changes, our information changes, like the funding landscape changes, mm -hmm. um, uh, where like, you know, again over the last six months, like markets are down a lot. It's been a crypto clash. So um, you know, we have we still have a lot of financial resources, but like less than we did six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to like have all of those considerations in mind. Mm -hmm. um, like entrepreneur types are normally like horrifically over-optimistic. Um, yeah. And maybe that's how you need to be, but it also could lead to like a lot of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Just to press on this, I guess, a, a little bit more. Um, are there any kind of outright, outright failure modes or some concrete scenarios where you think things go pretty badly wrong? Yeah, I, I guess uh, you know, one of my concerns would be uh, uh, political partisanship. Um, so this is something you know, I, I wrote in the precipice that uh, in kind of what not to do, I have a, have a little section. And uh, uh, one of my concerns is about uh, if any of the big ideas uh, you know, that we're discussing here uh, this weekend, uh, whether that be about existential risk or just generally considering the long-term future or effective altruism or itself, or uh, I guess with global poverty and animal welfare, they're, they're somewhat more established already. They've, they've kind of set their own trajectories. But uh, if these kind of get seen as like a left issue or a right issue, then I think that 
that there's a big problem. So if you look at environmentalism uh, in the US, the history is very interesting. Uh, you know, there's this great Ronald Reagan quote about it being not a left issue or a right issue, but an everyone issue. Uh, and in fact, in a lot of ways, it's naturally a conservative concept. It's, you know, it's, it's conserv conservation and conservatism are very linked words. Uh, but it ended up uh, becoming a, more of a left issue. Uh, and whereas before that, the, the two parties were competing uh, to win over the environmentalist voters, right? And then we got the situation where they weren't competing and in fact, we're trying to block the things. Uh, and so uh, I think that, that the best situation is where everyone's competing uh, to win over the, the people who care about it. Maybe the second best is that it's just such an obvious issue uh, that it's kind of in the background uh, and, you know, uh, uh, policymakers and regulators are trying to work to try to help these these things, uh, and no one even needs to discuss it. But then below that is some issue where one side is not interested, and, and below that is an issue where they're even fighting it, or, it's, or in fact below that it's just toxic, and no one even wants to to touch it, and everyone's distancing themselves. But I think that that you know we should be careful uh, uh, with those questions. Yeah, I mean, concrete failure mode is just like for me is yeah just negative impacts on culture where. Especially, I can imagine like, impli like implicitly, what's get rewarded is like flashiness or like you doing some like really big thing. But like, I always want the key thing to be like what's most impactful. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel this viscerally in my own life as well, where it's like, oh, it could be like running this like big thing, big organization, or like grant making or something. Or it's like sitting in a dressing gown with a cup of tea, <laughs> yeah. like working on some like you know, philosophy issue or something. Mm -hmm. but, like that latter thing can be better than the former. Um, especially given how little we know. And we really want to have a culture where what is getting rewarded is like the expected impact you're having rather than like, I mean, certainly not like how many employees do you have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so, Will, you, you mentioned the, the kind of change in resources over the last six months. So there has been a significant crypto crash. It's been the worst six months um, performance of the stock market since 1970. Um, we, you know, we have less resources in the community than we did six months ago. How should that change how we're thinking about ambition? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think there's like a few updates. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, one thing to bear in mind is like we still have enormous like financial <laughs> resources, like compared to you know what we were thinking about kind of a few years ago. Um, but there's definitely like a couple of things. I think the number one biggest is like aligned, like interested but not like super aligned like EA donors, where. One of the things I was really thinking about, you know, about a year ago was like, man, there are these like, especially on the long-termist side, like potentially interested donors, and they're like, what can we even fund? Like, I want to give, but what can we even fund? Um, and I was just worried about like such donors like bouncing off because they're like, well, there's just nothing to fund in this area, mm -hmm. and so things that could absorb a lot of money actually like, they could even end up being like, like net positive financially because <laughs> they're like a way of bringing in other donors. Um, one thing you find, like during the sessions, is that like certainly outside of EA community, like donors like freeze up a lot more, um, and so I think like that argument is like quite a bit weaker than it was. Um, a second thing is just like uh, in some areas, but certainly in the FTX side, like near-term cost of capital is like a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Like effective interest you can get, the rate of return is like much higher, and so that means like really big expenditures in like the next six months, like look like a less good deal. Um, and then like a little bit of a mood, like somewhat mood difference of not like, go su like, super big now. That being said, like the idea of like set up projects that can scale massively, like it's still gonna be really important. Like we still have like many tens of billions of dollars of 
um, capital that we want to like that we want to spend as effectively as possible, mm -hmm. um, and that's still like the key thing I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's a an opportunity to learn some lessons of humility uh, on this. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we, I guess we'll see what happens with, with crypto as to whether it is one of these things where it recovers and, you know, uh, or whether uh, it's had its highest uh, moments. Uh, but I think that the, the people who are earning money in this way or, or with other aspects of the stock market mm -hmm. and tech stocks, uh, yeah, they, they know that these things go up and down yeah, and that absolutely. they can come down. And uh, people have been, you know, have kind of already had that in mind. And yeah. uh, this is part of the expected landscape of possibilities. Um, so they're, they're people who, who aim big, but yeah, I think they've, a lot of them have already <laughs> kind of learned this lesson or something. That there's uh, part of the challenge, I guess, in those cases, if something does go up and, and might come down, is to know how much to kind of go all in on it and how much to kind of continually withdraw and bank some of the gains. Uh, uh, but uh, I, you know, people seem to have actually been pretty good at that in the community, as far as I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like you said, even if people have ideas for really scalable projects, it might be that their year one budget is like 10K or 50K. Yeah. yeah. Um, or like, it's more than that, but it's not like a... A billion. Yeah, it's a billion. I think it's like a very unlikely scenario where mm -hmm. like someone wants to start off at that level mm -hmm. and that makes sense rather than starting smaller and mm -hmm. scaling up. Um, great. So in terms of ideas for really ambitious projects you'd like to see, are there any that are top of mind? One that I've just, I'm really keen on is like far UVC. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Esvelt has been like really promoting this. Um, so the idea is like uh, UV light um, is known to kind of sterilize um, uh, like the air or a room. Um, so it just kills off pathogens. Issue with UV light in general is like it's also carcinogenic for humans. Um, however, like specific um, type of UV light, UVC, mm -hmm. um, seems to be safe in fact, yet has the sterilizing properties. Um, at the moment, it's very expensive to create light bulbs um, that have that, uh, that emit that light. It's like $1,000 per bulb. But perhaps with investment, we could get that way down, like $10, mm -hmm. even $1 per bulb. And so you could imagine it's just like part of regulation, like part of building codes, that this sort of light has to be um, implemented in, am I still? OK, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this type of light just has to be implemented like in all houses, like you know, maybe in just like most countries in the world. Mm -hmm. um, if so, then like we would make an enormous difference to the like probability of a, um, a worst case pandemic happening, while at the same time like eradicating most of the spiritually disease. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, that's pretty good. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> all like, mm -hmm. and the kind of early signs, like you don't want to get like too confident, optimistic, but like the early signs are like, this could just really work. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I don't know, that's like pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I've been thinking about a similar thing there um, in terms of in wake of this, this kind of warning shot of, uh, that we've had with COVID, um, I, I guess it's interesting. If, if, if it had peaked you know, over a few months and then gone away, like suppose we didn't have the variants and so we reached herd immunity to the, uh, uh, to the original variant, um, maybe we would have been able to learn more from it. <laughs> I kind of carried on long enough that it became a cultural war issue and... Uh, uh, and so uh, mm. it's, it's been a bit harder, particularly in America, to, to kind of decide to, you know, to keep talking about it. Basically, mm -hmm. the, I think the voters want to talk about anything else. Um, so there's a challenge there. Uh, but to the extent to which we, we still can learn these lessons and have it on the agenda, uh, there's, a, I think, a, a kind of a vision of 
thinking that uh, you know a century or two ago uh, we uh, got rid of uh, waterborne diseases in our cities, yeah. um, you know, through sanitation, and that this was this was huge um, uh, and evidence-based, you know, <laughs> attempts to uh, to improve the the future, uh, and could we do something like that with airborne diseases, and. One of the the approaches, I mean, learning from the history actually would be pretty interesting of kind of sewer connections and people getting kind of uh, uh, toilets and uh, and so forth for their houses. Uh, that as to did that require government intervention or was it just that you offered the things and that they're sufficiently exciting that people take them up? Uh, if you think about say the efforts to subsidize uh, thermal insulation for people's walls and roofs uh, or solar panels on people's roofs. There are these techniques, or more efficient boilers or heat pumps for houses. There are these approaches of subsidy and then also of um, uh, changing building codes or saying that in 20 years' time, it will be illegal to sell a house that doesn't have, uh, say, this air purification system. And it, it feels like just using, <laughs> to some extent, this is unambitious, right? It's like using the standard uh, infrastructure we've used for a whole lot of other policy choices uh, to to meet this ambitious goal of kind of getting rid of airborne disease. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, you know, one could look at this. When I was looking into it, uh, I was thinking about uh, uh, air filtering and ventilation. Uh, but, and there are some good answers on that. Uh, but it does seem like some of these uh, technologies, like the UVC, uh, may go quite a bit beyond that and are equivalent to a very large amount of ventilation. Uh, especially in some places, you know, some workplaces in particular, you can't really quite solve it with ventilation. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I think that there is room uh, to and and a very approachable political movement or something like that to say, you know, let's do for airborne diseases what we've done for waterborne diseases. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I've also just been, like, again, in terms of like cultural response here, like, really impressed by how some ideas for massively scalable projects just have been put into place, like. Um, uh, you know, I was really keen on this, like, taken by this fact that, like, in, um, you know, just poor countries across the world, they're, like, incredibly morally motivated, talented young people who, like, never have an opportunity to, like, um, or have very limited opportunities to, like, really um, kind of contribute in the world because they're just um, stuck in a kind of low-income environment. And yet, at the same time, we have these, like, huge problems that we just need more, like, morally motivated, talented people. Mm -hmm. And so, like, can we just try and find those people, give them fellowships, give them, like, introduction to these ideas? And the Atlas Fellowship is, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, been, like, aiming to do that. Um, a second thing was, like, uh, participant media, um, which is this, like, um, basically, they're, like, movie production company. So, like, the film Contagion, um, that was, like, a socially, socially motivated um, production. Uh, by this company, um, Participant Media, like, oh, maybe we could do the same, and like, commission documentaries, TV shows, um, movies, uh, where, you know, the win state is that you're like, making like close to like market return anyway, so it's actually very cheap once you've got sufficient capital, but yet you're having this like really positive cultural impact. Um, and that also like, again, extremely early stages, um, uh, but is going ahead. Um, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Natalie Cargill um, are kind of, uh, you know, develop, yeah, working to set up a production studio there. So, like, one thing I've just been, like, really impressed by how much people have, like, kind of heard this message and, like, yeah, we're going to do it. So. Mm -hmm. um, and as we think about, kind of, effective altruism growing and, say, it becomes more mainstream, um, are you worried that uh, 
EA kind of becomes less weird or like we lose the kind of more unusual aspects that inform our thinking? Or are you worried about putting people off in the first place by having these kind of unusual ways of thinking? Yeah, it, I, I, I think, yeah, it's a good question. Um, because I think that there are, I think there's, a, there's different ways in which this kind of weirdness can manifest. Uh, so I think that what's, uh, what's particularly valuable and, uh, and kind of striking uh, about this group of people and this group of ideas is that the ideas often are rooted in actually pretty solid things, right? If anything, boringly solid things about uh, if, it, if it matters to cure one person of blindness, it matters 10 times as much to cure 10 people of blindness. And people say, well, OK, sure. Um, and then what, but then you know, quite dramatic things start to follow from this uh, about what we should be doing. Uh, and so the conclusions of some of our ideas uh, are, you know, uh, uh, unusual and initially strike people as strange as to is the big issue of our time, you know, protecting uh, humanity from these existential risks. Uh, this is not what a lot of people think it is. The big issue is, and so, uh, so I think that there's a lot of unusualness there, and there is a potentially a pressure to, in in attempting to kind of like polish off the rough edges or to to reach wider audiences that we lose some of that. But by the by the same token, though, uh, there's also. Uh, a lot of weirdness on a kind of more personal level or that, that we have unusual ideas, or social ideas and things, uh, or come up with kind of our own new conventions for how to do things that we think are, are better than the old conventions. Uh, and then that we turn people off uh, with kind of cliqueishness or, or other aspects there. And so I think there's this idea of weirdness points. Uh, and I would say that uh, we want to use those on the ideas which we think are essential or at least transformative to humanity's future, not on the slightly superior forms of new social conventions that we've developed because we thought they were a bit better or, or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm like, in terms of, I think one thing I think quite strongly is like, ideas don't really have intrinsic weirdness or not, and mm -hmm. people make mistakes by thinking about that because there's just like, a thousand ways to present the same idea. So mm -hmm. if you're talking about long-termism, one way you can go is the like, uh, you know, classic Bushlomian, like, okay, this is how many lives that could be simulated with all of like solar light in the accessible universe. And mm -hmm. even a like one in a billion, billion, billion chance of like 10 to the 50 lives is like worth it. Worth it. That's like, a particularly like unfortunate presentation, I think, <laughs> and the argument like really doesn't need it. Mm -hmm. And instead, it could be like, "Look, well, do you care about your grandkids?" And like, "Do you care about your grandkids' grandkids?" And yeah. like, "Okay, like expand from there." Mm -hmm. um, so there's like a lot of ways into the kind of same idea, and they maybe have different resonances. Mm -hmm. um, I think the second thing is like that is tough, and I don't know, I don't actually have great solutions to it. Is just like as the community grows and becomes a lot more public, it's like harder to have kind of like freewheeling intellectual discussions, sort of thing like you find in a model philosophy seminar room and like, mm. I don't know, you defend a view and it's like, but you don't endorse the view or something. Mm -hmm. or you're like explore, just like exploring space. Like it's very nice to be, not be able to have to think like, oh, maybe there's a journalist listening in who will then just like take some of these quotes out of context or something. Mm -hmm. um, and on the EA forum, like journalists now just do read it or even participate. Um, and that does mean that like, it's just much harder to have like you've got to like think about mm -hmm. what you're saying like how like how could this be perceived if a quote was taken out of context or something and that's just that's tough that sucks. yeah that, that's that's a funny one as yeah. I do think that there is a certain uh, 
I don't know, sacredness or something about like the philosophy tutorial room, uh, or you know, pr probably even going back to, to ancient Greece, right? Yeah. Um, where you're allowed to kind of try out ideas and things. It's a bit like a kind of relationship you know, with, your, with your doctor or your therapist or something. <laughs> uh, and you know, people try out things, and then they say, oh yeah, I guess it was wrong. Like, you know, yeah, it, yeah, wouldn't that yeah. have this crazy conclusion? You're like, oh, yeah, I guess it does. Um, and uh, you can kind of move more quickly by, by trying out ideas and then uh, testing them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, when I was studying philosophy, this is not an EA example, but uh, they, a journalist wanted to come along to a philosophy conference uh, uh, that, that my lecturer was, uh, was, was doing. And they were talking about the other possible world's semantics for counterfactuals, which is some level kind of interesting, some level's pretty boring. Um, and uh, they were saying, oh yeah, we're basically saying there's a world in which each of the possible events happens. Uh, and so as the, any kind of thing could have a possible world. It's, it, for example, there's a world where people are walking around with a piece of toast on their head, yeah. uh, because that's something we could possibly do. And then uh, there's this expose that these taxpayer-funded philosophers oh were, were, were debating whether or not there is worlds where people have pieces of toast on their head, <laughs> and so on. And, uh, so, so, yeah. This I, is I think... particularly funny, because like, I also have a story about an argument between philosophers about modal logic where, um, yeah, two philosophers I know were, they were in a taxi, and so, yeah, modal claims are like, if X were to happen, then Y would happen. But one of them chose to have the um, antecedent, if I were to stab the taxi driver, <laughs> then, <laughs> and she got kicked out the taxi. Um, so, just for context, like philosophers really don't think about how what they're saying <laughs> might be received, even in the audience of a taxi cab. So it's definitely a worry for the, um, uh, you know, broader conversations yeah. we might have. Um. <laughs> don't, be, don't be that person. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the lesson. Um, so thinking about best case scenarios now, um, so imagine a best case scenario for, for long-termism. Um, where ideas have kind of like uh, been communicated in ways you think are, are ideal. Like, what do you see, and what kind of outcomes should we hope for? Yeah, I mean, when I'm thinking about like the kind of best case kind of cultural influence, I actually tend to think more about effective altruism mm -hmm. as a whole rather than long-termism. Where you know, and this relates to the idea of um, ambition as well. Where for many years, you know, we've had this idea of like. Effective altruism is to the pursuit of good what the scientific method is to the pursuit of truth. Mm -hmm. And in the course of writing What We Are the Future, I just learned a lot about um, like why did the Industrial Revolution happen, like what was going on there. And I'm pretty convinced, actually, that the main thing was like a cultural change. Like I think, actually, there was lots of factors, but the biggest thing was that like Western Europe developed this kind of culture of innovation. Um, and that's this like, pretty wild thing. Like, you know, the biggest event that like ever happened in history was like the underlying thing was just this like cultural change of like what was rewarded, what was like, what was it like socially acceptable or even like promoted to do? And so I kind of think of like the huge win state for EA as being like that, like actually being like a cultural change on the size of like the um, culture of innovation that led to the enlightenment, to the scientific revolution, mm -hmm. to the industrial revolution, and then getting taken seriously in the same way as, you know, all around the world, the idea that like, oh, if you want to pursue truth, then you use like approximately the methods of science is like very, very normal. Mm -hmm. You could have that in the same way as like, oh yeah, if you want to do good, you think impartially, you look from the point of view of the universe, you use evidence and careful reasoning to try to do that, mm -hmm. and you take a co cooperative approach with respect to other people. I think like if we get there, like I'm feeling very good about the world and about the future. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I guess I, uh, I've been thinking a bit in terms of very big but somewhat concrete uh, <laughs> kind of uh, wins, um, as opposed to just having a great future or something. Uh, about uh, existential security, uh, as I call it, uh, where the, there are a bunch of uh, different existential risks that we, that we face. And a lot of the conversation has been about um, taking a particular risk and trying to reduce it um, uh, and to, to become safe from it. But there, there will be more risks uh, to come. Uh, and if you, if you imagine a situation where there's a certain amount of risk each century as, as new things keep getting developed, uh, if you solve all of the risk in your century, you have a substantial impact. Suppose there was a 10% um, risk each century uh, and you get rid of it in your century. Um, the impact you have ends up being about 10% of the value of a century. Uh, but it doesn't end up being saving the long-term future because there's still uh, only going to last about 10 centuries on average if we keep having this amount of risk. Uh, whereas if you could do something that lowered the risk in all centuries, uh, then it would start to have this really transformative impact. Uh, and so I think we need to be doing both. We need to be fighting fires, but also kind of building a fire brigade uh, or you know, setting up uh, government so that we decide you know, we just really can't accept, say, big fires in San Francisco or in London or something and can, can learn from that and develop the housing codes or, or whatever in this case. So uh, I think that this involves reaching a point where nation states accept that there's a certain kind of limit on their sovereignty or a certain kind of, you know, effectively tr through treaties uh, with others that it's illegitimate to impose uh, existential risk and that we're just going to have to be a bit patient when it comes to certain kinds of technologies that could pose those risks. And I feel that that is quite doable. It's not really doable in 20 years. Uh, but if you, you know, you only have to go back, uh, I guess, uh, you know, it was 76 years or something, and uh, there was no UN. Um, uh, go back, uh, you know, 100 years or 102 or something, and uh, there had never even been a League of Nations or any real attempt to actually have a world uh, polity agreeing on anything. Uh, and so what would happen in another 100 years? Uh, I think that things like this are certainly on the table. Um, so I guess the idea of, sort of being ambitious and doing good in the world is to, to lead to these good outcomes. And you two are some, two, two of the people who thought the most about how the very long future could go. Um, can, you, can you guys clarify what you mean by the kind of long reflection? Um, and it'd, be, it'd be nice to move to that kind of philosophical discussion that, that I think was kind of quite big in discussion a couple of years ago. Yeah, I can, sure. I can say a okay, bit sure, on this. Sure. I find that this is uh, one, of, one of our most understood, misunderstood ideas. Uh, <laughs> almost, almost everyone <laughs> misunderstands it. And to a level where I'm, I'm quite surprised, they normally say, I really dislike your idea. It's actually a terrible, in fact, or maybe stupid, either stupid or immoral or something <laughs> idea. Instead, you should do this. And I'm like, oh, that's the thing I was talking about. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit frustrating. And <laughs> we've clearly failed at communication here. Uh, so, one way I think about it is that if you go back at least as far as, say, the ancient Greeks, you know, Socrates or, or earlier, um, there's been a kind of discussion about how we should live our lives and, uh, and what matters politically and, and ethically. Uh, and this conversation has at times been you know, between philosophers or writing books and things like that or journal articles. But also there's been you know, other uh, visionaries, uh, you know, such as Martin Luther King or others who have been uh, taking uh, different ideas and fighting with them, or, you know, the suffragists in, in England and the, you know, uh, the people fighting against the slave trade, 
who've been making moral progress in, in various ways. And what I'm saying is that we've had you know, at least two and a half thousand years of that. And we're probably going to need like two and a half thousand <laughs> years or more of it to come. And it would be unprecedented if we were to just stop that and to say, we're done, we've got the right thing, let's kind of indoctrinate that into the into future generations and not let them debate it or something along those lines and, and lock it in. Uh, and I'm saying, don't do that. Uh, instead, continue to have this kind of debate. Uh, it may be that you can do better and add some additional structure to it compared to just totally free form things. Um, but I'm not imagining it will be just like some kind of philosophy seminar that goes on for you know, thousands or millions of years <laughs> until everyone finishes the, the task, uh, or that it would only be philosophers, or that it's what everyone would be thinking about. And so an analogy I give in, in the precipice when I talk about it is uh, to the Enlightenment uh, or to the Renaissance, that these are time periods. It's not like everyone was making sculptures and kind of rediscovering ancient texts or developing new systems of government, but that's what the times are known for. Um, and so I think that, uh, that ultimately the role that the time period would be serving uh, in the big picture, really big picture history of humanity uh, would be continuing to, to really kind of work things out before we make any irreversible changes. So we could, we could all have the new iPhone or something. I think, I think I've been criticized of saying that we just absolutely lock in like <laughs> you know, 2022 technologies or something and, and everyone would do it because some philosopher said so. Um, instead, the idea is that it's not because I say so, it's because I think it's a good idea. And so we would be doing it if we think it's a good idea. Uh, and it would involve being cautious about irreversible changes and being cautious about locking in moral value systems for all time. Uh, and then also another aspect of it is kind of is saying some people get when they think about existential risks or they think about artificial intelligence, they're thinking, well, if we develop this AI, then what kind of utopia would we be choosing you know, to, to, to get? And I think, well, that's, that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. You'd want to take some time and also have a legitimate process that led to that choice. Um, and so what we'd want is to have a, a period of some kind of safety and stability that I call existential security in which we can no longer lose the game. And then it's kind of, you know, the future is ours to lose at that point. Uh, and at that point, uh, we can take our time to work out like how best to use that future. Uh, so that, that's, that's how I see the idea, which I, th I think is like just not that controversial, really. Uh, yeah, I'll just kind of add to that. Um, sometimes people think of it as a description, a prediction about what will happen, and that's like never what mm -hmm. the intention was. <laughs> Um, instead, it's like an ideal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as Toby says, like, the key thing is like, there might be these moments of lock-in. It's like, very hard to make change afterwards. So formation of a world government, um, mm -hmm. space settlement, might be these moments where like, what you go out and do is like, hard to change. Mm -hmm. And so the analogy is, like, imagine you're kind of a young person. You're about to embark on your career. But now suppose that like, like, how much time should you be thinking about like, what career do you pursue? But now imagine like, if you, once you start, you can't like, change. So it's a decision for all time. And then secondly, also just that um, your career is going to last a million years. And it's like, OK, you're going to really think about this decision before you go and do it. Um, and that's the kind of just key idea of um, the long reflection as well, is like, there are certain things that might happen that will be irreversible. Let's just like push that kind of um, into the future a little bit. Um, your description of kind of enlightenment gave me a thought just there, which was like, we have had this moment of lock-in in the past of the colonial era where, um, you know, would things have gone better if in, like, Western Europe 
they thought, well, I mean, obviously they just didn't actually even know that they were like discovering a whole new continent. Um, but if they thought like, oh, we should really be, if they had known like, we should really be thinking about what might happen when we're like now unifying the entire world and like <laughs> bringing like totally different set of diseases and <laughs> culture and institution and like to this whole new continent, like what ways that could go very badly. And I think um, obviously well-known ways in which it did mm -hmm. go very badly and like, it, yeah, um, I, that was that was a moment of like cultural lock-in. It, it is interesting as there were a lot of very bad aspects about how that happened, um, yeah. both in terms of what happened and also the choices. Like some of it was clearly bad at the time. Yeah, but it's actually quite hard to see how to do it well. Yeah, if you have a situation where there are different diseases in each place, and once they mix, as many as ninety percent of the people in one of those kind of world zones might die. What on earth do you do? Do, yeah. you, do you try to decide no one can ever cross the Atlantic? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you do. It's actually it'd be a fascinating counterfactual historical novel of some really well-meaning people trying yeah. to, 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 uh, to actually meet uh, their brethren yeah. across the sea in, in as good a way as possible. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah, another analogy perhaps as well is formation of the United States where, um, you know, the US wins the War of Independence. Like, what could they have done? George Washington could have said, like, I'm dictator now. This is what, how things are going to be. Instead, what happened is, like, the, like, leading intellectual figures from, like, all the states got together, and they sat and debated, like, mm -hmm. what should the Constitution of the United States be for, like, and it's for three months. I mean, it's, like, mm -hmm. absurd how actually, like, short this was. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, that's still better. Like, yeah. we've got, on one hand, George Washington saying he's dictator. It's, like, worst case. Philadelphia Convention, like three, four months of like debate, like debating this and like formatting a set of rules was like much, much better. Um, maybe it could have been five months. Maybe that would have been better again, um, <laughs> given that you know the U.S. Um, has already lasted like what, over two hundred years. Like, yeah, and, and um, there, there, you know, there are examples of these founders thinking seriously yeah. about the the centuries that could could come and, and feeling the weight on their shoulders mm. about making these decisions. Uh, and yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, this was known. Like John John Adams has this great quote of like, "The institutions now made in America will last for thou will not wear out wholly for thousands of years, and if they go wrong, they won't return except by accident to the right path." Therefore, of the last mm -hmm. importance that they be made right. And it's it, actually a good case of like someone taking long-term thinking seriously. It, exactly, and, like, and showing that it's not that weird. Actually, yeah. um, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it's a kind of sober, wise decision made by you know a person being very careful there. Uh, and that uh, I actually think that the the founding of, of America, which I've uh, had reason to think about due to Hamilton, <laughs> uh, of course, um, those of us who are not ourselves Americans, um, it yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as. A kind of analogy to an analogy for how I think about existential security and uh, the long reflection, uh, something like this, but at a, at a global level. Not yeah. in the case of founding a giant one country world thing. I, I, I don't think that would be a good idea. I think that would enhance other risks. You know, uh, but uh, rather trying to kind of come together to set the parameters by which uh, you know what are the boundaries by which we think we should never cross. Um, what are the things we think we should rule out? Yeah. But then. Uh, subject to you know two-thirds majority changing of those if we decide we'd got it wrong uh, or something like that. But then also, uh, what are the structures we're going to set up, uh, the, the kind of procedural system such that we hope to actually, you know, we don't want to lock uh, American values of that, you know, proto-American values in forever in ASPIC. Uh, they instead wanted to create a flourishing conversation. And so things like uh, free speech norms 
are a bit like this long reflection idea, where it's like, how do we set things up so that all voices will be heard, um, and so that the good ideas win out over the bad ideas, and, uh, and so that even though we don't know what those ideas or values are at the moment, uh, that we can kind of set up a, a system procedurally in a way that's seen also transparently to be fair to people of all different views, and to, to set that rolling forwards. Uh, so I think that, you know, what, what we're suggesting on this, this grander level is actually not, not that different in character. Mm -hmm. So if, if we make it through this time of existential risks, um, should we expect to just naturally converge on what the kind of best possible values in the long run should be? Or do you expect a lot of variation in how good the future could, could turn out to be? Uh, yeah, I mean, I like... Um, yeah, I kind of think there might be really quite a lot of variation. So mm -hmm. um, even if we do kind of reduce certainly extinction risks, but even like mm -hmm. kind of worse kind of misaligned AI risks to zero, nonetheless, like things that we might be quite um, contingent depending on kind of what values are predominant at the time and what are people trying to choose to do. Um, uh, where part of that is I think like the best kind of what really is the best outcome might be like quite a narrow target and also might be like quite alien, quite unusual. So kind of analogy is like how weird is quantum mechanics to like Aristotle? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how weird like the right model view is to us today or something. Mm -hmm. And if that's right, then like maybe it just doesn't happen like as a matter of default. Mm -hmm. And instead, like if we have the long reflection, I'm like feeling really good about that. Um, but if we don't and it's more like you know, just like something of like a kind of competition for power, then like the future we get, I think, at least could plausibly be like losing out on almost all value that we could have otherwise mm -hmm. achieved. Yeah, so I, I think this is actually an area where in some ways there's some of the most substantive disagreement between Will and I, yeah. um, although I think we at least agree about what the, <laughs> what the disagreement is. Um, so like with the idea of uh, existential risk, uh, it's, it's kind of predicated on simplifying things. Uh, so in some sense, you know, we maybe care about the expected value of the future or something like that. It's very hard to determine, very complex kind of thing. Uh, think about all the different pathways. Uh, but if there are things that could, you know, if it turns out that uh, empirically, uh, the worlds that we're going to end up in are either ones that get most of the value we could have ever achieved, say, let's say, more than 90% of, of, of our full potential, uh, or worlds where we have less than 10%, let's say, between minus 10% and plus 10% of our full potential, uh, then it's not such a bad approximation to just ask which of these buckets do we end up in, uh, and uh, then, just to, then you can just measure it by the probability. You don't have to do the probability times the values. Um, it simplifies the, the thinking a lot and you could just talk about how much existential risk is created. Uh, that's, that's the idea there. Um, if it turns out that that, that model's kind of wrong, uh, and that, that instead of having one kind of spike of probability near, nearish to zero and one near, near the maximum, that actually there's a whole lot in the middle, uh, then the idea of existential risk is just less useful. Um, uh, and so, uh, so I think that, that it's, a, it's a very useful conversation uh, to, to have, and, and I could be wrong about my view. My view is that it is more like these, these two peaks. Uh, and so I think of this because, uh, because there's this question, we're, we've got a long future ahead of us. Uh, and so there's this question, 
if we do get locked into a bad set of moral views, um, well, it, which could even be like the sets that we currently think are the best moral views, right? Um, if they turn out to be, uh, as Will was saying, substantially worse than what we could achieve, uh, but we lock them in somehow, uh, then we have, that is an existential catastrophe, the locking in of these, uh, these incorrect moral views. Uh, so, if, but if it's not locked in, and we've got millions of years, maybe billions of years of conversation, and that's, that's you know, millions of centuries, like, why doesn't it, it, it trend somewhere better, given that there's all of this ability to have, you know, conversation about it and so on? And so, uh, so that's kind of my general thinking, is that, there's, that the truth of a, of a view is some kind of, exerts some kind of pressure, right? You tend to do a bit better in arguments if your view is true, because the, the kind of things that support it work better, and your opponent, there are kind of ways to attack them on the falsity of their argument uh, that, that you've got access to. Um, so, so long as you can set up a neutral enough playing field about other things than truth, um, you can kind of get some convergence uh, towards the truth. Uh, and I would hope that, that over a long enough time, there's a kind of basin of attraction of starting points that will kind of veer towards the best outcome. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. But, uh, but I know in some other conversations with Will, like mm -hmm. you suggested some ways in which, uh, in which this could be wrong, and, you, and it's not just that you could lock in things towards the, the, the bottom, but you could get things in the middle. Yeah. Do, you, do you wanna mention any of them? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, lots to say. Um, I mean, one thing is just that, like, I think that the kind of, if we've got this situation of, like, millions or billions of years of conversation and so on, like, I'm also, like, feeling pretty good about that. Um, kind of in two ways, actually. Um, one is just, okay, maybe in general we trend. Or secondly, just, you know, supposing resources are just, like, equally distributed among everyone mm -hmm. in the world. And most people aren't kind of morally motivated. And it turns out there's no convergence there. They don't end up morally motivated. But some are, even mm -hmm. just 1% are. And they really care about doing the right thing. And you've got opportunities for trade. Mm -hmm. um, potentially the gains there are just, like, really huge. Um, where potentially both sides can get like 90% of what they want, or even 99% mm -hmm. of what they want. That's like, you know, quite promising. Um, however, I, I guess I'm like at least more pessimistic or more worried that we do get that like long amount of conversation where, I don't know, if we look at history, that kind of feels like something like egalitarian, liberal, democratic culture institutions kind of persisting for a very long time. And then if we look at um, history, actually like the normal social structure is like much more hierarchical, um, like even authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to me that kind of like egalitarian liberal democracies, like it's certainly very much helped by the very particular technological mode we're in, mm -hmm. where um, on one hand, like we have guns, like, and that actually is like very equalizing in terms of like military power. Um, so, uh, you know, if you imagine like a future where it's like, oh, I'm the dictator and I have like an automated army and automated police force. Um, this is one of those philosophy thought experiments. Do <laughs> <laughs> not say in a cab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not a dictator. <laughs> um, uh, you know, then, um, then that like underlying um, like distribution of power, like actually, you know, mm -hmm. you can quite plausibly think you could have like massively more concentration of like military power. But wouldn't that be an existential catastrophe then if they, if, if they locked that in? Well, then there's just at least this like 
question of like how bad, and I think this is true for like, um, yeah, like some like authoritarian future or something, like how bad is that um, compared to, you know, the best possible future? I think that just like, in the community at least, like a genuine kind of range cool. of views um, where, you know, if you think, we're gonna get a little more technical, but if you think it's like, uh, value is bounded, and so it's not like, mm -hmm. you know, you, you may be relatively quickly get to like close to the best possible future, then like perhaps something, even if it's like uh, somewhat dystopian, you're still achieving like half as much as you could have achieved. Um, that's like, I mean, it's not my view, but it's like at least a view you could have. Yeah. Um, even on futures where like AI, um, uh, like misaligned AI is the kind of takes over, um, some people like Paul Cristiano suggests that's like half as good as mm. the kind of like human future. So again, then like misaligned AI wouldn't count as an existential catastrophe, mm -hmm. but I certainly want to be really worried about that. Um, yeah. And again, just, like maybe. I'm just going to jump in and yeah. wrap up in, in the interest of time. I mean, this. I'm sure this conversation could go on for an hour. So it's well, we shame. are doing an office hours after this. Yes. As well. so yeah, exactly. People, people just you know can't get enough of this. Yeah. You, you can get more. <laughs> um, so I think I'll end on a on a kind of more personal question of. Um, yeah, is there anything that the other person has done in the last year that you're really impressed by or think is really valuable or, or what's something you really admire about the other person? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, many things. Um, <laughs> uh, but in general, I think I've just been really impressed by, like, Toby's inroads with, like, you know, politics and policy and then, like, the UN in particular. Um, Toby seems to have, like, a natural, like, ability to, like, work with the kind of political establishment uh, certainly I don't have, and I just think it's like generating enormous amounts of value. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that you do have it. I, I think that the key <laughs> is that, that there's a way of doing it that is surprising, but you, yeah. if you say clear and useful things that explain the issue and mm -hmm. kind of lay it out, they're like, they, they really listen. They're like, oh my God, no one else was doing this. Uh, they were just waffling about the thing that they pre-existing kind of organization they'd set up. Yeah. Uh, and so actually, uh, I think philosophers have the, the skill to do this, and, uh, and it's, it's easier than you'd think. Um, yeah. uh, but I, I guess uh, in, in your case, uh, I admire the kind of uh, boundless energy that you have <laughs> and, and bring to things, uh, oh, kind of continuing, and uh, and you've got like so many different uh, plates that you're you're spinning in the yeah. air or something, and so uh, you manage to keep them all spinning, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm impressed. Cool. Well, that was a very sweet note to end on. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, please join me in thanking Will and Toby.